Welcome to Z-Code Sports Betting Podcast, your place where insider secrets, tricks, and systems are revealed to help you become a successful sports investor. Let the show begin. Hey guys, Scott here, and I am super excited about today's interview. Today on the show with me, I have, well, how should I put this? It's a surprise, a mystery man. I can tell you he's a hockey legend. Uh, He is too well-known in major sports to actually be named on this show. So for privacy, we're going to simply call him Omega. And I got to admit, this is the first time I've been doing an interview like this. It feels really cool. I feel like an investigative reporter (laughs) getting the inside scoop or something. But he is here. He's a professional athlete, a star goaltender, an ex-major league player. So I want everybody to meet Omega Hey, Omega, it's really great to have you on the call today. It's a privilege and a pleasure to talk to you. Well, thanks very much, Scott. Uh, it's, it's exciting for me to actually talk with you guys as well. Well, I know you are from Canada, and you're already well-known in our Zico community of sports investors. And I know we're trying not to reveal any private facts about you, but can you tell us a little bit more about yourself, at least for our listeners, as much as you can? Sure. And how you got into hockey or chose hockey? Yeah, Scott. So um, I was born in Croatia, and my parents immigrated to Canada when I was one year old, and we ended up living in Edmonton for the first five years of my life. And coming from Croatia, my dad was uh, a very high-level soccer player, and he was a goaltender. And what was impressive about my father was he he was born with uh, some problems uh, in his left eye, and obviously medical technology was not uh, not the greatest back then. And he actually ended up losing uh, his left eye, and uh, he, he had a glass eye. And he was playing uh, semi-pro soccer as a goaltender with uh, a glass eye, which was pretty impressive when you think about the depth perception in the ball and everything coming at you. That's very impressive. So I, I guess uh, I received a little bit of uh, my, my dad's natural athletic genes. So when we came to Edmonton, uh, I mean, obviously soccer was a big part of his life, so he got me involved in playing soccer right away. And uh, I remember being four years old, and the way the story goes, I was apparently a pretty good little athlete. And uh, apparently I was playing on a soccer team with kids who were eight and nine years old. And you can't live in Edmonton and not eventually try hockey because it's so cold there. And uh, I remember a childhood friend of mine coming up to my dad and saying, you know, we're going skating and, uh, you know, can, can I come with them? And uh, my dad said, well, sure, but he doesn't have any skates. And my friend was... Uh, I think he was about four years older than me, and they gave me a, a old pair of his skates to try. So obviously they were too big, and the way the story goes, we went out into the rink, and uh, apparently I was kind of a natural. My friend's father looked at my dad and asked him how long I've been skating. My dad said this was uh, the first time I've ever tried this. And he told my dad that uh, apparently I, I looked pretty natural and that I should think about uh, playing hockey. So. From there, my dad uh, enrolled me into hockey, and kind of that's how I got my start into hockey. Well, I know that you played as a goaltender in major leagues, but when you retired, you actually started to play as a center. Is that correct? And is that common? Yes, that's uh, that's quite common. Actually, when I first started playing hockey, like back then, they, they work on a lot of fundamentals. So in my first year of hockey, you know, they're teaching kids how to skate. And uh, I was playing out in my first year of hockey as well. And, and uh, everybody has to kind of take a turn in goal throughout the course of the year. And I guess uh, when my turn came to play goal, uh, well, the way the story goes, apparently uh, I got a shutout in my first game. And the coach, uh, I guess out of all the other kids that tried goal that year, he said I looked uh, the most comfortable uh, at that position. So he, he asked my dad, he said, uh, you know, I think your son, kind of a natural goaltender, maybe he should uh, consider playing goal. So my dad asked me, do you want to play goal? And, you know, being a six, seven-year-old kid, I didn't know much better. I said, sure, I thought it was kind of fun. And so that's that's how I played uh, or got my start into goaltending. But I've always enjoyed playing out. There's, there's just something, you know, when – when you play goalie and you have guys shooting pucks at you all the time, it's a little more enjoyable to get out of the net and actually shoot pucks at other people. So I used to relish the opportunity when in optional skates. We could, uh, we used to put a defenseman in goal, and us goalies, we would go out and take our turn firing pucks at those guys. Well, it sounds like goaltending was in your family genes as well. Uh, I, obviously, I think so with uh, with my father. And it was actually kind of interesting when uh, I was playing playing soccer and playing hockey all at the same time. Uh, I played out and goaltender in soccer as well. 
and uh, I used to actually kind of combine the styles. It was uh, sometimes during a soccer game, a ball would get kicked at me, and I'd find myself sticking my leg out, kind of making a skate save, and then there'd be times in a hockey game where there's a big scramble, and I'd end up kind of diving across the net, almost like making a diving save. So I don't know if that uh, that helped me, but you know, back back in those days, they didn't really care as long as you stopped the puck. Sure. Well, during your years in the NHL, you played with some pretty big names. And I was wondering if maybe you could give me and the listeners maybe a good story or two. <laughs> uh, I'm sure I got a, a few good stories. Well, back back in when, when I signed my contract uh, with the New York Rangers, uh, my second year of uh, training camp was when Guy Lafleur came back out of retirement. And the New York Rangers decided to host a training camp that year in uh, Trois-Rivières, Quebec. And what an amazing experience that was. Uh, we, we came to training camp, and the very first practice, practice session, uh, scrimmage session that we had, there was over 8,000 people that filled the, uh, the, the rink where we were at. And, I wow. mean, the rink where we were having training camp was not uh, like a junior caliber rink. So to have that many people, I mean, it, it was just packed. And uh, I'll never forget uh, that that day. It was pretty interesting. I, I started the scrimmage, and uh, Guy Lafleur was on, on my team. And he ended up uh, getting a puck coming down the right side of the wing and just winding winding up and taking a classic Guy Lafleur slap shot that you used to see for years on television. And it was like his first shift, first chance he had, first shot on goal was a beautiful slap shot goal. And the place just erupted. I mean, to, to be at a scrimmage and have, you know, 8,000 people just going crazy, you, you don't really experience that. So that was kind of a, a memorable training camp, uh, training camp experience. Wow. Well, being a professional player in sports and now also being a professional better might sound related, but they're really not the same thing as it looks like maybe from the outside perspective. Otherwise, I guess we could say that all – professional players would be great handicappers, but we just know that's not the case. So could you tell us in your opinion, what the main difference is when it comes to analyzing the game as a player versus as a better? For me, the, the interesting thing is when, when you come, especially for, for games like, uh, well, actually for, for any, any professional game, when you are at that kind of a level and, and it doesn't even have to be professional sports, even if you played a high level of hockey, like say junior or you know, a Western hockey league uh, type caliber hockey, because you're in the games, you, you know, when momentum is changing, like you can see when a team is pushing and it gives you a really interesting perspective, especially for me, because I, I like to make a lot of live bet strategies and you can see when a team is sitting back, you can see when a team is actually scared to win. They're playing too defensive a lot of times a team comes out and they have a great start and they get up on their opponent. And then all of a sudden the, the defensive mentality kicks in and they stop pushing and they stop trying to win and they actually end up trying not to lose. And anytime you take your foot off the pedal and you start making that shift in the, the mental and emotional dynamics of what goes on in a game and the intensity and the compete level where you go from being offensive to defensive, a lot of mistakes happen. And it's to me, it's uh, really evident in, in games like basketball. How many times do you see a, a team all of a sudden go for like a 12, 13, 14-point run? Why is that possible? Why is the team all of a sudden just give up playing and they can't score for four or five minutes at a time? It's, it's these momentum shifts in a game that I think as a professional athlete or somebody who's played high-level sports, you're real kind of sensitive and in tune to, and you can see those type of opportunities that are happening in a game. And a lot of times... I'm sure, uh, well, before I started getting into my live bet strategies and I was just capping uh, my, my investments before a game, it would frustrate the heck out of me when the team I played, you could see them getting into that defensive mentality and that, that mind shift, and you knew that bad things were going to happen, and sure enough, they always did. Well, I'm, that sounds like the, the analyzing between a player and a better is very similar to that of when newbie betters that are truly passionate sports fans uh, try to get into sports investing. I mean, they're real experts in the sports. They watch every game. They travel with the team. They know all the statistics about every player, every detail. And then the same as professional athletes, when you watch them and it comes to betting, uh, you would expect them to have an edge and it to come pretty natural to them, be pretty easy. But we've seen a lot of people, you know, lose their bankroll pretty fast. Yeah. Um, and you think it's along the same lines then? I, I do. Like for, for me, the, 
they, I haven't been sports investing very long. It's only been a, a couple of years. And I remember my first year, the first year I started getting into sports investing was actually during uh, the NHL Stanley Cup playoffs. And what I ended up, just, just because uh, I had the mentality of, you know, oh, I'm a hockey player, I, I know this game, I know who's going to win, I know who should win. And I ended up losing quite a, I didn't lose my bankroll, but I ended up losing quite a few bets because nothing is ever as it seems. It's never as easy uh, as you think it is. And there's always, I mean, this is a game played by humans. And there's always the elements for upsets. There's always the elements for mistakes. And every year, there's always a team that ends up just barely making it into the playoffs. They, they have to win their last five, six, seven, ten games of the season just to get into the playoffs. And because they've been playing at that high level of intensity, when the playoffs start, other teams are actually trying to scramble to, to match that intensity. And it's not surprising. Like I think the, the last example is when we take a look at the Los Angeles Kings when they won. They made it into the playoffs, I believe, as an eighth seed, and then they go on to win the Stanley Cup playoffs. Well, why does that happen? That's because of team and chemistry and momentum uh, and just the intensity of people coming together at the right time. It's a magical formula. And when that happens, it's really tough to, it's really tough to, uh, uh, to compete against. But what happens is as a, as a person who's a, a capper, it, for me, what's been the biggest lesson is, is trying to take your ego out of things and, you know, thinking that you know better and you, you can't possibly, you know, take all, the, the variables that are going on in a game uh, at any particular time and, and try to make, you know, assessments and, and have them just be part of your, your process. There has to be room for, you know, for adjustments. And for me, the biggest lesson was just learning to kind of stay out of my own way and not think that I'm smarter than what I'm seeing. Well, you said that there's a lot of different things we have to take into consideration uh, when trying to read a game. So in your opinion, let me ask you this, what percentage of the games are decided by the goalkeeper? That is, that is huge. You know, maybe because I played the, played the position. I'm going I'm to say it's probably, probably at least 90%. Now, wow. it's, it's that integral because how many times do you see a, a game where a team is getting, getting outshot? They could be getting outshot on a two-to-one margin. And the team that has the, the least amount of shots wins the game. It's because when your goaltender is solid and he's making, when, when I played professionally, I was told, and when I went to, uh, the, I was invited to the Canadian Junior Olympic camp and the coaching and the, the sports psychologist uh, used to, to give us tips on what's, what's integral for a goaltender to, to, to do for your team to win. And one of the things that always made the biggest impression to me was in the first five minutes, in the last five minutes of the period, you as a goaltender, you need to bear down that extra little bit and you can't give up a goal because those are momentum-changing moments in a hockey game. Nothing worse when you start a period, you start a game, and you give up a goal in your first shot. You put your team right back on, right back on, uh, on its heels, and it's, it's like a punch in the stomach right off the, right off the hop of a game or a period. And then there's nothing more crucial that you give up a goal right at the end of a period. And so I used to bear down that extra bit and actually talk to myself during the game, like, okay, last five minutes, last five minutes or last first five minutes are coming up, bear down, bear down. These are the type of things that are, that are integral. And a goaltender, I mean, he can elevate the team or he could deflate the team just so quickly. It's, it's a little bit unfair because, you know, the goalie is the only guy on the ice, uh, you know, for the full 60 minutes. And, when a player or a forward or a defenseman makes a st- makes a mistake, there's another five guys on the ice that can cover it up. But you, as a goaltender, when you make the mistake, you're the it just stands out like a sore thumb, and there's no place for you to hide. I mean, we take a look at that uh, just the other day in the Chicago St. Louis game. Chicago ended up winning the game, but one of the first shots of the game was a goal that went through Brian Miller's five hole. It was a really, really weak, soft goal, and it was like right off the hop. And that was like one of the first goals, uh, first goals of the game. He's a he's such a skilled goaltender, and he's such a high quality goaltender that you don't usually see a lot of goals like that that go in on him. But when they do, all of a sudden it just gives that other team uh, a big lift. It's like. Oh, okay, and and I'm telling you, sports is really cruel. When when they notice a weakness, or when they notice that you're not on your game, or you're having problems with a particular shot or a particular uh, 
maybe you're you're having struggles high on the glove hand. The teams nowadays, there's so much video technology available, and there's so many things that they're trying to exploit. Like they'll they'll put the puck on the, on on that side where you are weak all night long, and it could be for it could make it for a long night if you're not able to you know not able to handle or make those adjustments. So for to say that uh, how how you know how big of a role does a goaltender play in sports uh, in the outcome of sports? It, I really believe it's as much as ninety percent. Well, you said the first five minutes and the final five minutes, you're having that conversation with yourself. What about if the game goes into overtime in a shootout? Does the outcome change then, do you think? I mean, are some goalies shootout experts and others not? You know what? It is. It's very similar to when I played. Um, breakaways were one of my favorite things. And I think the statistics that, uh, that I had shared with me, I used to stop 95% of my breakaways. And the reason was, was I had a strategy when a shooter was coming in on me on a breakaway. I used to do a little twitch. So a shooter would be coming in and I'd be standing in my goal stance and I would just shift my blocker arm a little bit towards him as he was coming in to make him think that I was going to slide out for a poke check. As soon as I did that, it made him either go left or right. Once I made him move to that one side, it was just very easy for me to slide over and took, take away all his space. So that was my strategy. I would actually try to make the shooter do what I wanted to do. I wouldn't sit there and let him come in and try to dictate what was going to happen. Now, some goaltenders, they are not as comfortable on breakaways. They sit back. They actually, they're a little bit too, too passive where they try to just wait, outweight the forward. But, I mean, some of these guys come in and they got such skillful hands like a guy like Patrick Kane. He, he, can, make, he can make so many, so many moves with his feet, with his stick, you could get mesmerized watching and trying to figure out what he's going to do. And as soon as that happens, he's got you where he wants you. So some goaltenders, uh, I, I mean, a classic guy is uh, because he's from, well, he's, he's not in our city anymore. He's been traded to Florida, was uh, Roberto Luongo. Great goaltender, but when it got to a shootout, horrible. He was, he, the, the level or uh, the success ratio of the Canucks winning in shootouts when he was in goal was, was not very strong. The Canucks were not a very good shootout team, and uh, Louie wasn't a very good shootout goaltender. You know, since I've got you on the call here and we're just discussing so much about goalies, i got to ask you to explain something to me. How that some NHL goalies, they play extremely well with one team. Yep. But the minute they get traded to another team, same guy, same year sometimes, same physical condition, everything you think would be the same, they fall apart. Do you have? Can you explain this to me? Absolutely. A lot of that depends on the type of system that a team plays and what kind of uh, what kind of defensive system a team is playing in front of him and the type of quality shots. So some teams are very very good at uh, playing like a trap system to keep all the shooters uh, to the outside. So that goaltender is getting a lot of shots that are coming from the outside, uh, not in real dangerous high quality scoring chances, and he's able to just absorb these shots and and make relatively routine saves. Then he might be traded to a team that is uh, weaker defensively, and now all of a sudden he's still getting 25, 30 shots a game, but those 25, 30 shots a game now are coming from real dangerous high quality scoring chances, and the the area that we call like I coach hockey and we we show our kids uh you know these are the areas that you want to shoot and they're from the top of the circles in on the goaltender any any areas in that high percentage uh, shooting zone is what uh, scoring chances teams when they're when they're keeping their statistics about you know high quality scoring chances these are the areas that they're trying to keep statistics on and if a goaltender is getting a lot of shots that are coming in those areas that can make him look bad versus what he was facing in another team. Hmm. Well, since we've kind of somewhat have your identity concealed, um, there's a question that I'm going to ask you that I've been dying to ask a few people. There's a lot of discussion, of course, among sports betters of the idea of the, the fix. Hmm. And I know that aside of some huge scandals in the past that the fix does not really happen that often at least I don't believe so in major sports anymore, at least not as it used to be. But from the player perspective, since you were a professional player, can can Vegas sportsbooks really fix a game? I mean, do you, and I'm not asking for details or exact examples, but is it possible that they can get to a referee or a goalie or something like that? See, for, for me, uh, I mean, 
I find it uh, very, well, let's just put this out. I, I was kind of a staunch advocate that that was absolute rubbish because, I mean, I've been around the game. I played as an athlete. I mean, these guys make way more money today than, you know, than when I played, you know, probably they're making at least 10 to 15 times more when, when I played, when I signed my contract, my contract was for $185,000 a year. And I had bonuses that could have taken my contract up to about $400,000 a year if I hit these performance bonuses. And I got to tell you, for a kid, you know, uh, at that time when I would have been 21, 22 years old, that was a lot of money. And now these guys, I mean, the average average guy in the NHL now is making half a million, six, seven hundred thousand dollars a year. So for him to get, you know, uh, let's just say, let's just say offered compensation to, you know, to fix a game. I, I don't think there's, I, I just can't picture that going on, but I'm not naive enough to, I mean, I've seen the evidence of, you know, I mean, we've seen and heard the scandals that go on in, in college sports and basketball and, you know, these referees that, I mean, it's come to light that these sort of things sure. do happen. So I've never seen it in the hockey circle. But you know, can a can a referee be uh, be influenced? Well, you know, referees. They're you know, when, when I played, I think the referees were making probably about fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year. Most of these uh, referees and linesmen these days are making, I think, believe anywhere between a hundred to three hundred thousand dollars a year. So I mean, you know, that that's decent money. But you know, um, if they were influenced, would they be you know open to taking a fifty thousand, hundred thousand dollar you know offer to help an outcome in a game. I'm not going to say that it can't happen. I, I think it's, it's possible. And what illuminated my eyes a little bit more to this was uh, a statement I heard from uh, Jacques Rowe from the Olympic Committee that their, their biggest concern and fear in sports was not about performance-enhancing drugs and, and doping, but was game match or game fixing. So when the head of the Olympic Committee comes out and makes a statement like that, well, then that's uh, that's obviously there's a lot more going on beneath the surface than we're aware of. Sure. Well, when the goalie comes back, uh, let's do a couple more goalie questions, sure. if you don't mind. Uh, when the goalie comes back from a long absence or injury, now I know I've got more experience in boxing than I do in hockey, and, and we would say that someone had ring rust if it's been a while since they had a fight. Yes. And I noticed that in hockey, when, when a goalie's coming back from a long absence or injury like this, that a lot of the bookies and betters are talking about him being rusty or I guess maybe we'd call it rink rust. Yeah. Does that apply in hockey as well? Same as boxing. You know, I, I definitely believe uh, there, there is an element of that. Although the, the type of training, the type of preparation that goes on for the athletes today is it's at such a high level that when a guy does come back, he's, he's pretty solid. I mean, I think the general perception is that, yeah, you know what, I wouldn't want to bet on uh, bet on this team or this guy until he's had a couple of games because it, it's very similar to exhibition season. I mean, you've been training during summer, you've been training during training camp, you know, so you, you step onto the ice and, you know, you should be ready to play. But there's a big difference between the speed of a game and game situations. You know, you, you can't simulate the intensity and the speed of a game truly in practice. So yes, there there could be you know a little bit of a little bit of rust, but uh, I've been in in my experiences with um, when I've tried to take that into effect on some of you know some of the uh, wagers that I've made, it hasn't been as big a factor as I thought it would be. So um, I believe for myself personally, when when I played, uh, if I took one week off, like we would we would get a little bit of a, a break. During All Star break or around Christmas time, you get three, four days, you know, off, and you come back. I always felt a little off that first one or two practices. My gear felt different. I just, it was just a mental thing, and so it is an element. It is an element, and I think you can probably chart it. I think it's probably more of a factor on some players than than others. Okay, it's definitely an element, possibly an exaggerated one by betters. What about fatigue? Uh, do teams, you know, when they have to play back-to-back in hockey, do do they really get tired, or is that something else that's exaggerated by the sports betters? No, that's a that's a definite uh, definite factor. Not as not as much if you're playing uh, back-to-back games. Uh, like when I played junior hockey, because you know they're trying to be flexible to your school system. I mean, we would play Friday, Saturday, Sunday. 
So you would play three games in three nights, and we would travel around with the bus. You know, mind you, we're not traveling as you know far graded distances as the pros are. But you know, I guarantee you, by that third game, I was pretty dog ass tired. And the, for me, though, uh, I often found that I played my best when I was really tired. And for me, mentally, uh, it was just because you're fatigued, you're a little bit tired. I found that I wasn't as anxious before the games. I was just a little bit more relaxed. And anytime you can get yourself into a real relaxed performance state, you often play, you often play your best games. But for the NHL guys, I mean, when you're playing physical teams and you've got travel, if you're going, uh, especially when time zones are involved, that can be a real, real difficulty. I mean, it's nothing, uh, you know, the, the NHL, everything, well, all pro sports for that matter, I mean, it seems very, very glamorous. But, you know, when you're playing and uh, you play a hockey game and the game ends, usually 9, 10 o'clock at night, the guys, uh, they do a little bit of uh, a little bit of exercise afterwards to get, you know, sit on the bike, get rid of some of the lactic acid in their legs. And by the time you get showered, by the time you have a meal in you, now it's around midnight. And then depending on, you know, if you're traveling and, uh, you know, they got charters and everything. But, you know what, you don't sleep that great on planes. You don't sleep that great on buses. And when you're pulling into a city at 3, 4, 5 in the morning, and next thing you know, you're trying to get your, your routine set for that day. It definitely plays a factor, especially if you have to travel. Like if you're if you're making a trip out to Alberta to play Calgary and Edmonton, and you play you know Calgary, and then the next night you're in Edmonton. I mean, you, you've only got an hour and a half drive. It's not going to be a big factor there. But if you play in Calgary, and then all of a sudden you fly, and you got to play into Toronto the next night, and you've got a three-hour time difference. That those are the type of scenarios that can play uh, you know have a, a fatiguing effect on teams. Let me ask you another question about upsets and and team you're you're talking a lot about mindset and something that just always blows me away is we compare teams and we kind of know how to expect how they're going to react to a certain offense a certain defense etc but it seems like all the time when a top team plays against the bottom team the the last when it should just be absolute domination how is it possible that that is when the upset happens so often <laughs> Well, I mean, here's a, here's a couple of factors why that happens. So, first of all, the the stronger team, they might actually psychologically let up. They you know they take a look in the standings and they're 20 points ahead, and you know they, it's just human nature. You you may let up a little bit. And then the other factor is oftentimes the coach will put the backup goaltender in. So your starter, he gives him a night off, and you put your backup goaltender or your younger goalie in to gain some experience. So you, you might not be as strong in net, and you might have that little bit of uh, just a bit of an emotional letdown. But the team who is, you know, the, the underdog, you're, you're trying to use that game as, as kind of a rallying cry for your team to uplift yourself. So you've got one team that's, you know, a little bit emotionally down or flat and maybe, not, maybe resting some key players. And then you've got the weaker team that's like, hey, guys, let's, let's show them what we can do. You know, we're better than we are. And they try to raise their game and put their best effort forward, and it often makes for a real competitive game. What about uh, you're talking about the influence of the attitude? What about when a team returns home from a long road trip? Does that really influence their performance? That first home game back? I've always wondered that. You know what? It, it absolutely does, and you often you often will see you will often see that the guys, especially when they're coming off a, a long road trip where they've been away for a week or two weeks, and they come back. That first road game, for whatever reason, or home game, sorry, whatever reason, seems to be a little bit flat. And one of the reasons why that is is, as a as a player, as an athlete, we often enjoyed getting on the road. And the reason was is because you you don't have to worry about anything. You it changes your routine. You're just you're away from your home. You're away from your family. You're away from the the responsibilities of taking the kids to school, of, of paying bills. And I mean, we've got life. We've got life at home. And when you take away that that distraction, you just get away to be on the road and just focus on doing nothing but eating, sleeping, doing your pregame skate, going to the rink, getting ready, playing the game, you're much more mentally relaxed and, in, and just in a different place. And, you know, as much as uh, we miss our families and everything when we're on the road and you come home, you're really happy, you know, they're happy to see you. So what happens is you've got other obligations pulling at you. You've got life that's, you know, back at home. And oftentimes uh, it takes a, a mentality change to shift yourself back into that routine. And that's why a lot of times that first game comes out a little flat. 
I know in sports investing and betting that it's not good to be emotional. Fans, I, I've got friends, for example, if their team loses uh, NFL team on a Sunday, well, you don't want to be around them the rest of the weekend. <laughs> I mean, they really take it hard. And I've always wondered about players. After a huge blowout loss, has it been your experience for you and knowing other players? Do the players get really sad, or is it just kind of like you take it professionally, you move on, it's just a job, and you don't, you can't invest your emotions like that? How does that play out for the player? You know what? Uh, that was, and I'm be be honest with you, that was my biggest weakness. Was as a goaltender, I took the game so hard. And if we lost and I knew I was the guy who made the bad goal or was a, a contributing factor to our loss, it ate away at me. Like it, I came home and it would just stew on me. I'd be a pretty grumpy guy. And I was looking for ways to mentally try to just, like they always say, you got to have a short memory and forget about that. There's a lot of guys who, and I think in today's NHL, because there's so much uh, psychological coaching and, and a lot of things about mental, you know, mental mind frames and shifts that it helps the players to forget it. And it, it really is uh, a, a key role that if you're going to be successful in, in the NHL or any, any pro sports, when you have a bad performance or when you make a mistake, it, you have to learn from it. You know, you could take a look at the video and you could take a look at what happened and you can take a look at, you know, coaches will often uh, work on those things in, in practice the next day and the systems and the breakdowns of what happened. And you, you learn from it, but you really do have to forget about it really quick because you've got another game. And when you're playing two games, three games in, you know, three, four days, it does get a little easier to forget. It's For me, the worst was if, if we had three, four days between our next game and I was able to kind of sit there and stew in my own uh, self-pity about, you know, my mistake. It's a lot easier to just uh, forget about it when you've got a game the next night. Sure, and I think that's kind of exposing it on the individual level, but what about as a team? Do you think after a huge blowout loss that you guys come back together maybe playing more defensive or cautious? You, you try to make your adjustments. I mean, the, the coaching staff will – They'll, they'll be the ones who bring, you know, bring here's what, you know, like if we got blown out, what was the cause of that? Were we missing these defensive assignments? Like they, they will take a look and they identify, you know, what those glow, glowing errors were. And you, you try to do a quick fix on it right away. Even if you don't have a, a practice, if you just have your pregame skate, you'll do your walkthroughs and positioning and just kind of reaffirm the fundamentals of what needs to happen. And, you know, when guys, when we, when we are part of a blow up, we do, you know, you do, you, you do take it personal. I mean, athletes are very competitive. We, we've all got pride, and nobody, nobody likes losing. Nobody likes losing, then let alone when you get blown out. And, you know, you, you show up the next night, and you really try to put your best foot forward. But you'll often see teams will go through slumps where all of a sudden they might go three, four games, five games, and they're, you know, just they're losing. They, they've lost focus. They've lost momentum. And the biggest thing is confidence. When you lose confidence, that's the biggest challenge because it's tough to get your confidence back. And the only way you can get your confidence back, and I mean, I tell this to the kids that we coach, it's I don't care about the outcome of a game because we're working towards an end goal, and the end goal is to be winning a championship at the end of the season. We're going to have wins, we're going to have losses, but no matter whether we're winning or we're losing, I want us to play the way that I expect us to. So you really work on your processes, you really work on systems, you really work on the, the level of intensity and the type of style of play. And as long as you're working and, you, you, and you're, you're happy with the, that progress that you're seeing in that aspect, it makes those, those losses much more easy, you know, easy to accept. But what's not acceptable is when a team doesn't give effort. And I mean, we've all watched, uh, you know, we've all watched sports where, you just don't know what's going on. It, it looks like kids, you know, playing pros, and you just have no idea <laughs> yeah. how how a team could just fall so far. But really, that uh, a lot of that comes down to confidence, and it, it's a very fragile thing. When you lose confidence, the only way you can get it back it, is you have to work even harder to get it back. And you, you hear athletes and you hear teams talk. We just got to get back to the basics. You've got to get back to the fundamentals. We've got to work on our, you know, on our systems. And it's, 
it sounds cliche, but the only when you've lost, the only way to get it back is to kind of go, go right back to scratch, start from the beginning, and it all comes down to effort, commitment, working a system, just focusing on your own individual uh, elements of, you know, because you're your team, but each guy has to do their part. And I mean, I think football is one of the, you know, the best examples of that. Every play that these coaches insert, like each guy has an assignment and it takes the 11 or 12 guys in the field to commit and achieve success in their assignment to have a successful play. If one guy screws it up, that play ends up getting, you know, play ends up getting messed up. So, you know, when, when guys are, are struggling, it's, you know, the teams get together. You, you'll often hear about the guys having closed, you know, teams saying they're having closed-door meetings. Well, during those closed-door meetings, some pretty, pretty frank discussions, you know, take place. That's usually when a couple of key leaders in the room kind of grab the team by the scruff of the shirt and say, we've got to give our heads a shake. We've got to start playing for each other. We've got to start, you know, and I've been part of these, uh, these meetings, and sometimes you get called out. And I guarantee you it's not fun getting called out. So confidence or the lack of confidence can really explain some of the streaks that teams go through. Absolutely. When, when you are confident, and I mean, I talk about this with the kids we coach, when you are confident, when you're rolling, you're having fun. And it's just like everything goes your way. The puck hits the post and it goes in instead of the puck hitting the post and going wide. The referee, you know, he makes the calls. Like, all the calls go your way. All the bounces go your way. It, it's just, it, it, it's, it's such an infectious thing. But then the opposite is true as well. Like, when you lose and losing starts to become a culture, and you almost expect bad results. You expect that the bounce isn't going to go your way. You expect to get the negative calls. It is really such a fragile thing, and it all comes down to mentality, and it comes down to belief, and it comes down to work. Well, you said now that you're coaching kids. I got a question for you, maybe from a coach's perspective more, but you got teams like Colorado Avalanche, and they did a total rebuild and went from the worst to the best in just like a one year turnaround time. Yep. And so, how is it possible you think that some teams go through such a fast and dramatic change, and then you've got other teams that just seem to struggle for years? never improving, and even though they're getting better picks, they're getting uh, new player trades, they get extra funding, and nothing changes there. We're talking about Edmonton Oilers, aren't we? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, One of the reasons that that you you see a team turn around really quickly is, first of all, the professionalism and the culture that they have in their organization, and obviously the quality of draft picks. Uh, You take a look at a, a team like Detroit, I mean, they're always, they're always seeming to be finding that guy, that European that nobody's really heard of, that all of a sudden you know, sits in the minors and really hones his craft, and all of a sudden when they bring him up to play, he comes on the scene, and he's, he's performing at such a high level, and all of a sudden you know, he's, he's like rookie of the year caliber. Well, it, a lot of that is becoming I mean, Detroit has a, a great history of, of training and working their, their draft picks and, and you know, not bringing them up until they're game ready. A team like the Oilers, we take a look at them, and you know they're getting some. They've obviously gotten some great draft picks, and they got some great talent. But a lot of those guys are getting thrust into key roles right off the hop, coming out of junior, and that's uh, they're not ready to play yet, and they're still trying to learn their learn their craft, learn their game. Colorado is uh, an organization. They got uh, a great general manager. They've obviously made some great draft picks. Uh, I mean, you even take a look at Patrick Waugh as a coach. I mean, here's a guy who could have stepped into the NHL as soon as his career was done, but he chose to coach minor hockey, chose to coach junior hockey, and he really honed his craft and his skills before all of a sudden he was deciding which NHL opportunity would be right for him. And it's no surprise to see the level of success he has. I mean, there's a guy who just burns with intensity. He just burns with passion for the game. And he's obviously a very smart guy because he's a goalie. Yeah, (laughs) of course. (laughs) Well, listen, let's, this is a sports investing podcast, and so let's get back to talking about sports betting for a second before um, I get in trouble. Before, before I forget, I, I, there is one story that I did want to share. You were asking about, uh, about stories. And oh, please do. My, my, the story I wanted to share right off the top that I kind of forgot about was when, when I signed my contract uh, with, the, with the New York Rangers, I went to New York Ranger training camp uh, as a free agent. 
So I didn't get drafted. So as a 19-year-old, I had a really strong, a really strong year. And so the Rangers invited me to, to training camp, and I went through rookie training camp, and I was playing really well, and so they invited me to main camp. And uh, I was one of the surprise, the little surprise stories that emerged at a training camp. And the very first exhibition game that we had was against the Philadelphia Flyers. And the Philadelphia Flyers and the New York Rangers are just notorious for a heated rivalry. There's a, a lot of animosity that goes, uh, goes on between them. Sure. And one of my favorite goaltenders uh, of all time when I was younger was a, a goalie by the name of Glenn Chico Resch. He used to play for the New York Islanders. And uh, the Philadelphia Flyers picked him up to uh, mentor a young goalie at that time of name, Ron Hextall. And everybody's familiar with Ron. He was a, a real, just a, he was a fantastic goaltender, had a great career, but Chico Resch was his mentor. And I remember them telling me that uh, I was going to start. Uh, so I got my first NHL start against uh, the Philadelphia Flyers in Madison Square Garden where it had like 16,000 just crazy screaming fans for, you know, an exhibition game. And I remember looking down the other end of the rink and seeing my idol, like this, this goaltender who I admired and tried to uh, model some of my style after. And it was such a surreal experience to be a 20-year-old kid looking down the other end of the rink playing against a guy that you used to watch on TV and, and idolize. And uh, it was just such a, such a memorable, uh, memorable experience. You know, it's, it's so vivid to me, you know, all these 20, 20 plus years later. And uh, we ended up, we ended up losing that game. We ended up losing three, two, but like I played well and, and he played very well. And uh, that was just one of those uh, highlight experiences for me. It sounds like you had a really intense first year or so with this playing with these legends and the first scrimmage with 8,000 and then starting in the gardens with 16,000. And I mean, that is a way to start for a young man. I, I really bet that was exciting. It, it was. And actually, I remember kind of laughing in, uh, in that particular game. It was actually televised. And um, I was playing for uh, the newest Mr. Bruins uh, in the Western Hockey League at that time. And, you know, a bunch of the guys, uh, you know, from my team, they, they were actually sitting in a restaurant and they, they watched the game on TV. And uh, what I remember about that game was I think the second shot of the game was a slap shot that hit me in the throat. And uh, oh. it, it obviously took the, you know, took the wind out of me and, uh the, the trainers came out on the ice and uh, they were checking to make sure that it didn't shatter my esophagus. And it was just, you know, obviously it swelled. Let me tell you, when you get hit in the throat, it swells up right away and you have yeah. a hard time swallowing. And so it makes breathing a little bit of a challenge. But uh, the trainer took me off the ice and I sat on the bench while they were examining me. And the coach uh, at that time, he looked at me and said, it's okay, you know, uh, the other goalie was in. And they weren't going to let me go back in. the The trainer didn't want to, uh, the trainer didn't want me to go out. But you know, this was my chance. I'm I'm a 20 year old guy trying to make an impression. So the next whistle that came, it just happened to be an offside, uh, right near our bench in our zone. And without telling anybody, I just grabbed my helmet, jumped over the board, and skated back on the ice and uh, sent the other goalie off. <laughs> so I played the rest of, played the rest of the first period. And when the period ended, I, I didn't know if I was going to get in trouble, if they were going to yell at me or what was going to happen. But Phil Esposito was the general manager of, of the team at that time. He came into the dressing room after the first period, and he walked over to me, and he stuck out his hand, and he shook my head, and he said, way to go, kid. I'm glad you got back in there. And so I think that took the pressure off. No coach was going to give me heck after that happened. Well, I'm sure you're glad you added that part of the story in. I love that. <laughs> Well, let's get back to sports betting. Um, you've been doing very successful betting using the Omega Live system that you developed and you post about it in Zico community. Could you take a minute and tell us a little bit more about your live betting system and how it works? Sure. In all, in all honesty, the, the way the live betting evolved was, I mean, I hate losing. And it was really frustrating to me, you know, to, to try to do all my due diligence and all my research. And, I mean, how many times do we see that, we pick a game and we pick a, a team and, you know, we, we think the spread and everything's going to work out and sure they end up winning, but we lose the spread and uh, they, they just don't perform the way we expected. And I was just monitoring all the lines that happen 
Um, I mean, one of the, one of the, the sites that I use uh, for my live betting is Bet365. I'm not trying to put a plug out there for anything, but in my humble opinion, they've just got one of the most more robust systems for the way I like to play. And I was watching these games, and I would watch a, a team that was favored, and let, let's just say they were favored to let, let's just pick a basketball game for instance, and uh, they were they were favored to win by by seven. And I would watch, and it just seemed I was noticing these patterns that would happen, that there would be a situation during a game where all of a sudden the team would go cold. It could be the favorite; they would go cold, and all of a sudden the other team comes and makes a big surge, and now your favorite team is is behind. And then all of a sudden they come back and they make their big push in the third and fourth quarter and end up pulling out a victory. But instead of winning by seven, they only won by three. And But I noticed that during the course of the game that odds and lines were moving all the time. So I just started watching this and monitoring this. And I thought, you know what, if, if I like a team to win this game and if I like them to win at seven, I'm really going to like them to win at, you know, minus two. And so I started uh, just playing the, the scenarios, and they were winning. And so to me, the live betting thing is something that I very rarely play now where I will actually just cap a game and just make the bet beforehand. I actually like to see the game start. I like to see the ebb and flow. I like to see is my research and my assessment of this situation, this game, correct? And I often find that I can actually get better odds during the course of a game than actually uh, than than pregame and so i started monitoring this and uh i was just having some great success with it so i started sharing that and then some of the things that i that i did notice uh i mean there's certain sports that that are more appropriate for live betting and, and basketball and college basketball are are a couple of those sports and i started to find opportunities of doing live quarter betting and i found that first quarters second quarters and third quarters were really strong for uh for these live betting opportunities i would often find that if you take a look at the start of uh start of a basketball game uh you might see that okay first quarter they're showing uh, an over an over say over 54 at minus or sorry at plus 100 and they're showing an under 54 at um, minus 120. Well, so right away, the, the bookie has an indication. You know, he has an idea that he thinks that uh, this, this first quarter is going to be around the 54, 54 total. And I often find that teams, they come out in that first quarter, and if they're expected to go over, they often go under. They're, for whatever reason, they come out, they get a bit of a slow start, they're feeling each other out, maybe their defense, their defense is feeling a little bit sharper at the beginning of the game, and I found that uh, what I was monitoring these things, what I call the magical odd. When I would see these scenarios where, I mean, to me, it's, it's all about the business. If a bookie is saying that the quarter total is going to go over and he's offering plus 100, well, as a business person, I'm not going to want to pay that out. I'd rather pay out the, the lower odd. So I started just monitoring this, and I was like, wow, when I see that scenario, that minus 120 seems to win at a really, really high rate. So I was just kind of calculating these things, uh, calculating points throughout the, co- uh, the, the course of a quarter. Uh, because during, during NBA basketball, I mean, the, the points go back and forth quite feverishly at times. But I would monitor in a 12-minute quarter, I would be monitoring every three minutes how many points the teams got. And then I'd monitor it in the next three minutes. And I'd monitor it in the next three minutes. And you could try to see these trends emerge are they increasing uh, average points per minute or are they decreasing average points per minute? And I would do my calculations in terms of how many points that they would get. So what I would do is calculate, you know, I hope this doesn't sound too complicated, but if a team, if they, if when a timeout occurs, and often the great thing with NBA is you often get lengthy timeouts so you can really start to do some good calculations, I would take how many points they have scored in let's just say a timeout happens and it's uh, five minutes left in the quarter. So you take how many, how many points have been scored by the seven minutes played, and that gives you an average point per minute. Then you multiply that point per minute by how many minutes are remaining in the quarter, and then that gives you a projected outcome of how many points are going to score in the quarter. 
And if I was noticing that, let's just say the total was uh, going under 54, and if I was noticing that my calculations were coming in at around 48 or 49 of what they should score for the quarter, and I was seeing that magic odd of plus 100 and minus 120, I started jumping and taking the minus 120, and I was having some unbelievable success rates with that. Hmm. And so that's one of the things that I've been experimenting and been trying to share with on, on Z-Code. And I've also, uh, because there's so many European League basketball games, I call that uh, the live betting system or the live betting method. Uh, we've kind of affectionately nicknamed it on the forum as the BLT system. It's full bacon, lettuce, and tomato. You know, you're calculating, you're taking odds in, everything's in play. But for overseas basketball, I've often, I've also discovered another method of what I call NCM, which is a no counting method. And with that, I wasn't even calculating how many points these teams are scoring. I was just watching, watching the quarter go back and forth. And when you're watching a game, all it takes is a period of about a minute where the teams go flat. And you'll notice this, even in the NBA, you'll, you'll often find that the teams go flat and they won't score any points for a period of anywhere from 40, 40 seconds to a minute. When you notice that, that's enough to affect an over and under outcome. And if I was noticing that they were getting flat and I was noticing that those uh, magic odds of plus 100 and minus 120 were there, I was just experimenting with just taking the pick without even doing any calculations. And my success ratio uh, was in the high 80s, even 90% on uh, overseas basketball. Wow. That's a lot of information. I love reading those posts in the Zico community. And for those that are listening, I encourage you to check them out as well. Try to follow along with that a little bit. Uh, last but not least, Omega, you talk a lot, you know, here today about the mindset of an athlete. And I noticed that a lot of people from the Zico community enjoy your daily inspiration posts and quotes and things that you leave there. Uh, it seems like that has transferred over to your life as a better as well. Could you talk a little bit about why you think mindset is so important uh, to the better as well as the athlete? Absolutely. I mean, for for me, I think it's uh, just an instinctual thing. You can't play sports for as many years. I mean, I'm, I'm 47 years old, and I've been playing competitive, organized sports for probably 40 years. You you can't go through life and have you know that that kind of uh, experience and and not change you. Like I hate to lose. So when I'm taking my finances into, into consideration here in, in sports investing, I don't make these plays expecting to lose. And I think that's one of the biggest things is I'm always looking for the edge. And I'm always trying to, to I think subconsciously my mind is somehow attuned to watching the numbers and watching the movements and patterns that I see in live betting. And in any game and in any quarter, I can see an opportunity. Like sometimes uh, I, I don't, I'm, I'm not able to get the bet in quick enough because you, you, you enter it in and then the next thing it takes a couple minutes or a couple seconds to process. And that opportunity could be gone that quick. And when it does move and I don't get a chance to, to I won't chase it. I look at it and like, dang, okay, and there it happened. That was the opportunity. That was the time. I missed it. Okay, let's look for another one. And I think a lot of times people will, you often hear this, uh, when you make a mistake, they end up chasing, and I won't chase. If the opportunity is there, it has to be there, you know it. It's kind of an intuitive thing. It's a psychological thing from just watching and observing. You know when that opportunity was right. And if you're able to, in, in, in a perfect world, all things work, you enter in your wager, the, the processing happens quick enough, you get it, and you usually win. But when you weren't able to get it, and the next thing you know, I think, uh, especially for live betting, you get anxious, you get nervous, you feel like you've missed something, and you want to try to, you want, it's almost like you're forcing it too hard. And those are the times that you, you make mistakes. And I think a lot of that happens with people in sports investing and, and uh, just psychologically, Nobody likes to lose, and what happens is, okay, you've, you've lost your bet. Now you start to push a little bit. You start maybe trying to find opportunities to try to make up what you've lost, and you might be making riskier plays. And what happens is just one mistake leads to another and starts to compound, and the next thing you know, you've lost four or five in a row, and you're, you don't know what happened to you. The, the real thing 
to me about being successful in sports investing is no ego, not too high, not too low, having a proper structure in place. And for me, now the I've learned after a couple of years here that a loss is not a loss. It's just delayed profit for me because I'll t- carry that loss over to a net, another bet. Uh, I take my A bet, it didn't win. I move it into a B bet a progression and my B bet or my C bet win and I've recouped. I'm not nervous and I'm not so emotionally distraught because I've lost my A bet because I know that it will cash on the time I get to a B or C bet. And that's something that's heavily emphasized in Zico community is that long-term outlook on sports investing. And I think it ties right back into what you were saying earlier about being a young man who would take his losses maybe a little too hard or his mistakes um, and how things are probably a little bit better nowadays with the psychological training that athletes have. But it's the same way in betting as well. You're going to have some losses and you can't take them so personal and you can't uh, dwell on them forever, but you have to have that long-term mindset uh, for recouping and thinking about the next game or the next bet or the next play. No, a- absolutely. I mean, I-, I still don't like to lose, but the the funny thing to me is because of my live betting, I, my strategy, like when I lose now, it, the frustrating thing is I'll work on my calculations. We'll take a basketball game, for example, and uh, I-, I lost one last night. And the funny thing was I worked on my calculations and the total was uh, under 37 but you know what a last minute bucket <laughs> it's, uh, the 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 wager was about to win and then a team sinks a three-pointer right at the last minute <laughs> and next thing you know it lands right on the number so when those type of things happen to me it's, it's frustrating because you were almost right and you know you why couldn't they have sunk a two-pointer instead of a three-pointer you can't yeah. contr- you can't control that so you, you, it's just part of it's just part of the the drill. I mean, a guy a guy should have made a catch, a goalie should have made a save, a guy had an empty net. Like this is just sports. I mean, it's gonna happen. And now instead of getting angry about it, I laughed about it because I'm like, oh, dag nabbit, you know, he got the the bug, you know, the three pointer right at the last second, and you know what? Okay, I, I lost that one. But you know what? You just jump on and you find the the next opportunity. And you know the main the main thing is is just being consistent, not being so emotionally, you know, over emotionally engaged in this. And if you are, the you, you need to step away. Uh, for me, I ended up taking a, a bit of a, a sabbatical because when I was playing as many, what was exciting to me was I was making lots of money. And because there's technology and there's just so many basketball leagues, you know, around the world, you could play basketball almost 24 hours a day. And I just was I was enjoying this process. I was enjoying learning. I was enjoying just, well, I was enjoying the fruits of my labor. But what I found was it got too consuming. And it got so consuming, you know, I, I have a young family. I've got two kids that are 14 and 12. I've got business interests. I've got church interests. I've got, you know, recreation and sports. I just didn't like who I was becoming. I was becoming glued to a monitor and I didn't want to be a guy who was just sitting here at a monitor. Just that was my, that was what my life was about. And when I heard my, uh, my little girl ask my, my wife one day, why does dad just spend so much time on his phone and on, on his computer? That was kind of a, a wake up call for me because I don't want my kids to know me as a person who's distracted and I don't, I don't care how much money you can make. Nothing is more sacred than, than family. And you need to have a proper, I guess it comes down to the, the, the mindset that we've been talking about, Scott. All things have to be in balance. And if you are, if you are getting too emotional, if you're getting too consumed, you need to hang on. Like, a, like our coaches used to say, you need to give yourself a little checkup from the neck up and make sure that you're not letting it overtake you. Well, Mega, I think that's the perfect note to end this interview on. We'll all take that to heart. And we are really grateful and appreciative of your time today and your insights. Well, thank you very much, Scott. It's been a pleasure. And uh, I, I hope the, the Zico community finds finds some of this of interest and helpful. And i got to say, uh, I mean, I, I'm just uh, humbled to be part of the Zico community because there's just so many great, great minds. There's so many great systems and uh I know I've benefited from sharing ideas with the community and, you know, we've, we've seen the pros and cons of systems that work and don't work. And 
the, the community is just so awesome. It, it really is. And uh, if you're new to the community, I would just encourage you to watch, read. Don't be afraid to ask any questions because uh, we're all here to help each other. Well, we look forward to interacting with you on the on the forums and the community and to have you back on the podcast for a future episode. Greatly appreciate it, Scott. Thank you for listening to Z-Code Sports Betting Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show today. Remember to go to iTunes and post your comment and topic suggestion for the next episode. We love to hear from you. See you on the next show. Have a fantastic day.